Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with a very special guest, Miss Tiffany Ryder. She comes with an amazing background that I want to make sure I get correct, so just bear with me. She is an NFL cheerleader turned emergency medicine physician assistant and is passionate about providing affordable and accessible primary care. And if that wasn't enough, she's the founding partner of Direct Care Connect, a nonprofit healthcare delivery model with a vision to provide direct primary care services to underserved and underinsured communities in the United States. As I'm sure many of you have already known, she writes and speaks frequently on her personal and clinical expertise and experiences, highlighting the need for expanded access to patient education and patient care services. And with that, I'd like to welcome Ms. Ryder. Hi, Jay. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. No, I'm glad that we were finally able to connect. Now, for those who may not be aware of your advocacy of your work, can you provide a little bit about your background, how you got started, and where you've learned today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I certainly was not always in medicine. Um, like you mentioned, I came from athletics and uh, and really intended to get into that world and cheer for just a short time just to prove that I could do it. Um, but things sort of took off and I ended up in that space for almost 10 years uh, before turning to medicine. Um, it's actually sort of how I ended up you know, getting into medicine and, and knowing that that was the, the place that I wanted to spend the rest of my career. Um, but yeah, I uh, have had some experiences. I'm happy to share more about that, but currently practicing emergency medicine as a PA, which is um, exciting and wonderful, but it also, you know, very much highlights, at least in my area, but what I think is more of a nationwide problem um, of patients uh, n just really not having access to the care that they need. Um, and so through, you know, discussions and networking that I've been grateful to have been able to do um, with people who are in the primary care space, uh, we've started this nonprofit and are now looking to try to bring um, more primary care solutions to underserved areas. No, well served. Piece that together for us granularly a bit. As an emergency medicine physician assistant, you see a lot mm -hmm. of acute care conditions. So conceivably, in areas where there's a shortage of primary care, you may pick up the slack, so to speak. Is it really that binary where you can tell where there's a shortage, or is there a more complex continuity that binds the ER world with the primary care world? You know, that's it's an interesting question, and I'm not sure that there's a right answer for it. There's just the answer of what my experience has been like. Um, primarily, I have worked in the rural areas, so I've always been in a rural emergency department, um, and that's by choice just because I grew up in an area um, in the middle of nowhere, Louisiana, and those are, those are my people. Um, you know, but it's uh, it's interesting what we see in the emergency department because, you know, I'm often questioned, well, I hear that you're talking about, you know, primary care. All we ever see you, you know, posting on and writing on and speaking on is primary care, but you've never worked in primary care. Like, how do you how do you make that connection? And um, and really, for me, it's it's uh, it's not only about 
there being long lists for primary care and there being, you know, waits and patients can't get in or some patients don't have health insurance and they don't understand that you can actually go and seek primary care even when you don't have a magic card in your wallet. Um, but it's, it's also just uh, sort of what I believe is a misunderstanding of just the way that the medical system works where we have um, sort of looked to primary or to specialty care as you know something that is more highly desirable, or you know maybe you can get a faster answer or a better answer, or you know something that's more nuanced. When uh, what I found in my experience is that the opposite is generally true. I'm usually able to give. Um, almost a lower quality of care to these patients that come in because I don't know them and I don't have their med list and I don't understand their, you know, living situation like a primary care physician would. And so um, that's sort of how I find myself interconnected with the primary care world. It's interesting. You, you said a few phrases that I thought were very fascinating. And I want to touch back on that. Sure. You talked about your people and you talked about the quality of care and how getting to know somebody leads yeah. to higher quality care in this world of protocolized medicine where every test has a quantified value financially and clinically it's almost the opposite of what you're saying talk mm -hmm. to a little bit about why you feel getting to know a patient and understanding a person's background actually leads to higher quality of care so i think there are several ways that it can um the first of which is is simply colored by my own bias and my own um, non-compliance, if I use a medical term, right? But I, um, I'm very hesitant to, you know, take medication or do a test that's recommended. I'm very skeptical, and I find that a lot of my patients are as well, um, especially in you know more recent times where you know you're getting conflicting views from different different spaces on the internet, whatever you. And um, and it's much easier, I think, for patients to look to someone that they know and like and trust and say, well, hey, like, how do we have this conversation? How are you doing this risk benefit calculation? Why are you recommending this exact thing to me? Um, and that's much easier to do when you have some understanding uh, of what the patient's life is like and what your doctor's personality is like. And so I think just the interpersonal dynamics play a big role there. Um, but in addition to that, even in my experience, even the most informed, well-educated patients will come into the emergency room and you ask them questions like, you know, my electronic medical record says that you're on these 10 medications. Um, talk to me about this particular one. What do you take that medication for? And sometimes the patients will say, oh, I don't take that. Or I don't even know if I take that. I just take what my doctor tells me. Or, or you know, I'll say, well, that's not a medicine that, you know, we would usually take all the time. Um, do you know why you're taking it for longer than three months? And they say, oh, I don't know. You know, so, so having these conversations um, is is obviously uh, much more challenging when you're just getting to know someone. And most of your patients didn't go to medical school, and it's not something that should be required to be able to receive mm -hmm. medical care.
That's interesting. Um, the word bias often is used mm-hmm. in a negative connotation. You're mm-hmm. suggesting that it's almost a way to connect, that your bias and the patient's bias almost forms a type of connection, if you will, that can improve the quality of care. Would you say that's a fair assessment or a misreading the situation? Um, I think that um, at least in my interpretation of the word and the way that I use it every day, honestly, is is simply to acknowledge where I'm coming from and what my what my tendencies are and and i i do disclose those as much as possible when i'm aware especially to my patients and i say well you know i tend to you know treat this more aggressively because i had a scary you know situation at some point that has caused me to be biased in this way or, you know, but I feel like having that conversation, especially in an environment where, um, where you don't know each other and being able to say, this is the type of person, this is the way that I view the world. And that way they know if they view the world differently, they might want to ask more questions. That's really fascinating because I find that personally quite refreshing in the sense that you're revealing your human side. It's, in many ways, epitomizing medical humanism. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine, though, in this kind of corporatized world of healthcare, that may have run afoul at times where maybe some administrative overlord or what have you might be saying, hey, don't talk so much about yourself or, hey, don't reveal so much about your tendencies. Have you ever got any pushback for being so relatable? So it's interesting um, because I could certainly say that perhaps in school, in the preclinical space, um, that may have been true, right, in, um, in sort of these role-playing exercises. But what I found in the clinic is that people just seem to be desperate. They are desperate for a human connection. They are desperate for real truth and answers and, and something that feels real. And, um, and my patients, you know, I'm very honest about what I know and what I don't know. And actually, I've never heard of that. Let me grab my attending. Like, I feel very comfortable in that space. And I think that people generally respond very well to that and respect that. And, uh, and even, you know, perhaps the, the doctors that I work with or managerial staff that may have not always um, loved that about me or may have some sort of disdain for that approach, when your patients are happy and they don't have to deal with complaints ever, um, that goes a long way. So it has not been something that's really bothered me in, in the clinical space. That's interesting. Um... Let me touch on a few points that I think might be a little touchy, if you will. Sure. Pun intended. But I think uh, it, it would be very fascinating for the audience to get a glimpse of it. This approach, being relatable and kind of mm-hmm. expressing yourself as much as the clinical course of care, uh, how much of it is because you're a physician assistant versus being a physician? And how much of it is because of who you are being perhaps a woman as opposed to somebody who's a man, how much of it is that your own individual dynamics, which is kind of like a systematic play? Yeah, that's a incredibly insightful question. Um, 
that I'm not sure that I've thought about prior to this yeah. moment, but you know, having, having been a PA, uh, that is something almost that I think we're allowed and afforded as these, you know, quote, mid-level providers, right? I think that um, it's something that was clear to me even from um, before going to uh, PA school was that the dynamic was different, right? And and I don't know if it's just the the fact that I get to introduce myself as, hey, I'm Tiffany Ryder and I'm the PA who's going to see you. Call me Tiffany. And, you know, and that does it. Or, or if it's the fact that I'm a woman or that I grew up um, in a situation with very limited financial means around people who, you know, had very little formal education and um, and just feel really comfortable in that space, um, but but I do think that there is a dynamic there, and it's probably a combination of all of those things. Yeah, it's interesting because your life experiences have almost given you a certain skill, a certain empathy that mm-hmm. I think would be more appreciated in today's world of medicine, where there's just a growing angst, a growing frustration. Uh, how do you sense the angst in a patient and how do you tap into that to enhance that patient experience? So I think that it's, you know, for better, for worse, it's a quality that, um, that I've cultivated through having difficult experiences myself. Um, and I was really grateful to have attending physicians who, um, you know, even in the emergency room where we often think, oh, like, I can't believe this patient is here for this minor complaint, or I can't believe that, you know, they didn't understand that they could call their doctor, uh, you know, who has an on-call service and thought they needed to come in here. You know, even in situations where it's very clearly not an emergency, um, I've had, you know, I've had physicians model incredible behavior, like, hey, I have, um, I know that you're here because you're anxious. No one wants to be in the emergency department. I am not finding anything that's incredibly concerning, which is good news, right? But but what can we do to get you to a place to where you can go home and feel comfortable and confident that you've you know been properly evaluated? But just having those conversations modeled, I think is, um, is something that I've been grateful to find. And I do think that that's been impacted by the places that I've practiced. I do Mm -hmm. think that that's mattered. Um, Being in that rural environment, it's very hard to to always be more formal with your patients or to use language that might be harder for, you know, someone in that situation to understand. And I think that's been helpful. From my own personal experiences, practicing in different regions of Northwest Indiana, Mm -hmm. what I found was having a sense of the local community, local trends really helps. Uh, other places you've practiced, uh, were there any tidbits or any subtle nuances that you picked up on that made you more relatable? Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, honestly, right? Other than I think I've intentionally sought out um, environments where I felt comfortable. 
Uh, I certainly did some rotations in, uh, in, I call it the big city, like in downtown Baltimore and went places. And what I noticed um, and what I would recommend to anyone who might be a student or, you know, early on in their journey is that I noticed that I didn't feel like I fit in. I felt like a fish out of water. I would talk to patients and they would explain stories to me that I just had never, they were things I had never experienced or I didn't understand. Or my colleagues would um, speak, you know, they would talk about patients in a way that that didn't resonate with me. Um, and I found just from going on job interviews and doing rotations in different areas that this rural setting just resonated with my upbringing and, and, and allowed me to go back to pre-medical training and say, oh, like, how would I have understood that? How did I want someone to speak to me? Um, and I think that's been, that's been a big part of, of how I've been able to be happy in the situations that I've been in and why I've been able to relate to patients as well as I have. Well, it's interesting. Let's touch on that a bit the whole aspect of your preclinical life versus the clinical mm -hmm. life and how you drew comfort. Without getting too much into the specifics, can you give mm -hmm. an example of a situation where you knew you didn't feel comfortable versus a situation where you knew you felt comfortable? Was there a trigger that then determined I'm comfortable versus I'm not comfortable? I think that feeling, I've always been uh, curious and I think that many of us in medicine really are like we're those kids that just mm -hmm. drive our parents crazy because we just can't stop asking questions. And and I think for me, that's probably the clearest indication is being able to, you know, show up somewhere and say, I don't understand what's happening. Like, why? Why is this going on? Or, you know, and not just with staff, but with patients and with, um, you know, with people at higher positions or different education or skill sets than than I have to to just be able to say, I don't need to know everything and I don't know everything, but like, can you help me understand what in the heck you're talking about? Um, and I think that, uh, I think that that's been a pretty good indication of if I'm in a good place where I'm going to thrive. Yeah. How much of this in, goes back to your preclinical life, um, working as a cheerleader, meeting new people, putting yourself out there? How much of that helps to inform how you practice medicine today? Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty significant. Um, I you know I know that from my background of really growing up, like going to the health clinic to get vaccinations, you know, before school and then any other visit or interaction really just didn't happen in the primary care setting. It happened in the emergency department because there was something significant because I didn't have health insurance. And my first, um, my first interaction after, after growing up and getting married and moving out of the house and Going to college, you know, was really um, working at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. So mm -hmm. after becoming a cheerleader, we were able to volunteer for, you know, different types of events or um, work at different marketing events, uh, charity events. And the USO was really welcoming to us and they were really good about um, giving us opportunities to interact with 
at that time were veterans who were coming back from the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan wars. And and it's interesting when I look back at it now because I I really got a skewed experience that I didn't realize was skewed at the time um, because I had come from a background without health insurance. And then I was meeting these um, amazing men and women who were coming back. They were my age. They were 22, 23, you know, early to early to mid 20s and were, you know, struggling with terrible injuries, amputations, um, trying to get their life back on track. And the medical community was amazing. It was, you know, they were in the hospital, their families were there, their families were living on site. There was, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, the surgeons, everyone was working together really to, you know, to say, what can we do to support you? How can we support your mental health and, you know, everything. And I thought, oh, wow, like this must be what hospital medicine is. This must be what it's like everywhere, right? And, uh, you know, we had parties and and athletic events that we would bring them to. I mean, it was amazing. Um, and so, you know, that's what I thought medicine was. And that's the vision that I had. And so when I went, you know, I went along with my career and was dancing and I danced in Europe and I did all of these things. But I said, man, when I'm done here, like this is what I'm going into. And, um, you know, what, what you and I both know now is that the real world looks a little bit different than that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it did it did plant that seed of what's possible and i think that that's likely what what drives me now is is knowing that we can do better than we're currently doing is that what drives the push towards direct primary care and what sprung your interest in that yeah so Direct primary care, I sort of fell into by accident. Um, when I quit my job to go back to school, uh, it was it was a mess, right? I was paying, I, I couldn't work while I was in school. And then I was paying like $300 a month for my insurance premiums. And I had, I mean, it was like a ten or $12,000 deductible. Mm-hmm. And... I said, well, I'm not going to, you know, if I get sick, like this, this really isn't going to cut it, right? I'm like functionally uninsured. So what can I do? So I looked in my community and I found this doctor, which I didn't know was a direct primary care doctor at the time, but I found this doctor that said, oh, well, if you pay, you know, $700 for the year, then you can come in. I did the math and I said, well, that's probably much cheaper than it would be for me to have to pay my deductible. And so I signed up for it. And then I started noticing that, you know, I didn't have to miss class when I needed care. I could do telemedicine. So it was just this whole other, um, this whole other world that honestly, I didn't even know how to name, uh, but I loved it. And so, you know, fast forward, like four or five years later, I was working in the emergency department. I'm looking at, you know, primary care and saying, where, where is all the primary care? How can I connect my patients? And, um, and started asking more questions. And I came upon uh, this book that I talk about all the time uh, called The Price We Pay by Marty McCary. And it's, um, it's a book about, you know, things that 
we do like very obviously are not doing um, well in the medical system and his assessment of how we got to this place and what are some things that could be better. And, uh, and I read that book and I said, well, all these people, all these, you know, small business owners that he mentions here are changing the world in teeny tiny little ways. I want to be a part of that. And so I reached out to everyone in the book. I literally went through with a highlighter and highlighted all the docs and the, the business owners that he mentioned in the book. And I started reaching out to them on LinkedIn and I said, hi, this is my name and I'm an ERPA and I just really want to know, like, are you really doing these cool things? And, um, and the reception was awesome. And so I, uh, I met Emma Fox and Dave, David Contorto and Jeff Gold and just some people who were involved in this direct primary care movement. And they said, Hey, we would love to, you know, we'd love to work with you and, and help you solve this problem that we're trying, we're trying to solve too. And that's how it happened. Wow, that's that's amazing. Uh, just that level of initiative is is very unique, and I think that's part and parcel for why you've been able to accomplish so many successes in so many different realms. Let's maybe scale that back a bit for the individual who may not have that forthrightness and really hit a poignant moment in their right, primary care experience, and that's the financial component. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have a, any hesitation when the question ever came up or the issue ever came up, this is what you need to pay for the clinical services. Insurance companies are are very unique in that they avoid that question, even though the bills will come in later. But direct primary care, that issue is up front and center. Is it ever awkward? Is it ever uncomfortable to bring up? As a patient or as a provider? I think both. Uh, I'd like to kind of get your perspective from both angles. I'm, I'm very curious because I myself, when I provide direct primary care services, I always feel a sense of awkwardness that I have to then overcome. And sometimes what I do is I'll say, hey, I know this is a little bit awkward, but I like to talk about the finances up front so that we're all on the same page. And then I kind of just, as you mentioned, convey my awkwardness, convey my sense yes. of kind of hesitancy. And I find that to be then an angle of relatability. And I'm curious yes. to see if you've experienced that and kind of what experiences you've seen in your realm. Yeah. Um, you know, as a, as a patient, that one's easy. Um, it was, it was almost calculated. Uh, although, Although still seems weird, right? Like it's hard, I think, to to shift your mindset from this idea of, well, I'm already paying, right? I was already paying $300 a month. Shouldn't I get something for that? And isn't the thing that I should get for that, like, I don't know, a visit with my doctor or like, I don't know, something? Um but, you know, really, when I did the math as a patient, I, I still felt resentful and, and unhappy that I had to pay more money on top of this other. But it's, it's literally just having the experience of realizing uh, people get sick and I'm going to have to yeah. go to the doctor and it's going to cost me, you know, two, $200 just, you know, to go to the primary care and to wait. And I think for me, the, the biggest thing as a patient was the idea that I couldn't afford to take a half a half a day out of out of the classroom like 
to go sit in a waiting room at the doctor's office to be seen. Like that was probably the biggest selling point for me um, and continued even after I graduated, like as an emergency medicine PA, if I don't work, I don't get paid, right? So it's not, you know, there, there's a whole host of people work, you know, working in this country that don't have enough PTO for, you know, to cover all of the things that that's needed or don't have any PTO or on hourly wages. And I think that was the biggest selling point um, for me. And as a provider, it's it's different. It's interesting because I'm not talking directly to patients about providing direct primary care services myself. So mm. I don't have that awkward moment that you have um, because it's easy for me to say, well, you should go see Dr. J. And if you can do it in this way, that's absolutely what you should do. And let me tell you why, right? Mm. Like, it's very easy for me to do that because I'm not, um, you know, on the receiving end of any sort of payment. Right. But but it's 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 interesting how much, you know, guilt we feel about things, even though you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are providing incredible value for, you know, whatever the subscription cost might be in Illinois. Um, but it's it's a it's a difficult conversation for us, especially in medicine, because I don't know, I wasn't taught that in school. Yeah, no, there's never a course or a plenary on how to discuss financial aspects of medicine with your patient. Yeah. Certainly not, not a course that you'll see in too many medical school curriculum. Yeah, for but sure. It's interesting how we need to start having that conversation. Um, for me, I, as mentioned, convey the emotions that I'm feeling at the time when I bring it up. Uh, in your experiences with the physicians that you've worked with, or at least the physicians that you've spoken to about these mm -hmm. models, what, techniques or what sort of approaches do they take when they're having these conversations? I think it's similar, right? It's similar to acknowledging that it's just acknowledging that this is not something that we're accustomed to doing. And, yeah. and, and you, you know, as the, as the physician, as the clinician and as the patient, we're, we're used to having this this little magic card that does all of the things for us and yeah. and we feel some sense of entitlement because we pay for that. Um, and I think that's the biggest hurdle. I have a friend I mentioned earlier, um, Dr. Gold. Uh, he's a direct primary care physician in Massachusetts and I've heard him talk about it and he says, you know, my subscription costs less than almost every American in this country pays for their cell phone bill. So, mm. and I provide like amazing service. So like, I'm, I don't feel, you know, that, that it's, that it's a huge ask, but I do feel like it's a, it's a matter of addressing what almost seems sometimes like a religion. Like we, mm. we are, we are emotionally attached to the idea of health insurance. Um, which if we treated like car insurance, which is essentially what I do with my DPC, I say, okay, I will go take care of all of these things. But if I have something big, then that's worth, you know, clicking that claim button. Um, but if we treated it more like car insurance, the whole country would be in a better place. 
That's really fascinating because different insurances evoke different emotions. Life insurance, mm -hmm. car insurance, health insurance. Isn't it? Yeah, it, it's really interesting how part of this is to understand the psychology of health insurance and what sort of attachments patients have. And going back to what you had mentioned earlier, it's a form of bias. So perhaps yeah. by raising awareness of that bias, you can help ease the transition into a DPC model. Yeah, yeah. And I almost think, and in, in this is part of the reason behind this, um, this nonprofit that we're starting is that there's this idea, when I speak to people about direct primary care, there's this false belief, in my opinion, that direct primary care is for, for rich people. And mm. I always say, uh, I got direct primary care because I couldn't afford to go to the doctor, right? Like, because yeah. I had no job and was living on my student loans um, very poorly. So, you know, it's really just a matter of, um, of reframing that conversation. And, and I think that, you know, the, the easiest way that I see to reframe that conversation is more people talking about it, more people going on podcasts and writing about things like this, but also, you know, this, our, our idea behind the nonprofit is, well, how can we provide, you know, direct primary care to underinsured or uninsured patients? Because the follow-up question to that is, well, why do they need it? You know, we have lots of programs, we have lots of things. And the answer to that is, is it super cumbersome, right? Like signing up for Medicaid is really difficult for a lot of patients. Figuring out the system, like getting into the primary care after you're signed up, or for, you know, someone who is, working and they want to be able to work so that they can move up and get to a higher paying job where they can afford these outrageous deductibles. You know, you can't get there without taking the first step. But if taking the first step by getting a job means that now you can't afford your deductible, but also you don't qualify for government programs that provide health care, like what the heck kind of choice is that? And and that's really what drives me is that, you know, I grew up in that household, right? My mom routinely like would call me and say, well, I don't know what to do. I really want to work, but I don't, I'm not going to make enough money to make up for the food assistance that I'm getting. How do I navigate this? And I think that that's, I think that's a terrible way to run society and that we need we need somebody jumping in and providing alternate solutions. I couldn't agree with you more. And I feel that unless you're treating this patient population, you don't understand the incentive structure and the decisions that are yep. proposed to them on a daily basis in terms of leveraging the resources available versus wanting to work. And what I can attest to yeah. is that most patients want to work. They don't want to be on a program where they're handicapped, yeah. but they find that yeah. the wages don't justify the benefits of being on the program. So in fact, you're creating a state of indentured workers. And yes. it, it, it's a, so speak to that. Uh, how would the DPC model work in that? Would you guys focus on, let's say, identifying a certain margins and then saying, well, let's create a primary care model where 
this is the margins where it would be beneficial for a patient. So based off of this margin, these are the clinical services that we can provide. Do you almost kind of amortize it out to kind of look at what would be the subscription model that would then justify the care provided? Yeah, so that's that's essentially how we're looking at the question and we're in the early stages, right? But this is like the goal is to make it wonderful and successful and get people to a baseline level of health and how do we do that? And, you know, I have said many times since finally graduating and getting a job, right, is that <laughs> I would love to sponsor a family for DPC because it's been life-changing for me, right? So, you know, does it look like, you know, does it look like individuals, you know, helping other individuals on some sort of sliding scale, you know, does it look like a world where we're, you know, getting corporate donations, you know, we're, we're still in the, in the planning phases of all of that. But I think, you know, really getting down to, like you said, that, that community needs assessment of what, what are the barriers to care? Where are those lines? What can we price you know, DPC at to make it competitive at different levels? And, um, and how can we serve the community in this really, it really is a concierge customer service, like amazing way, um, but without, you know, the, the concierge price. I want to perhaps, uh, and again, this is speaking on the theme of being awkward, uh, play devil's advocate and talk mm -hmm. about the notion of patient decision-making and patient autonomy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. many of these programs, Medicare, Medicaid, are predicated on making key decisions for patients. You mm -hmm. have to work and you get this benefit. You have to get this level of screening. You're only allowed this certain types of medications. So they limit patient decision-making. They limit patient <laughs> autonomy. And those who may develop the programs or who may be in positions of authority sometimes make the argument that by having these systems set in place, we help patients make decisions in situations where they can't. Do you see any value or any merit in that line of logic? It's a big one. It is a big one. And I, and I feel um, generally just oppositional to, you know, any yeah. sort of oversight and control. But I think in, in much the same way as, you know, a local government likely, you know, serves their population different than, you know, perhaps the federal government. I think it's a, it's a similar analogy when you mm -hmm. have um, a program that's designed by, uh, you know, someone in D.C. or even by the state capital, it's less flexible and less responsive to the needs of the individual community. And I do think that you... Um, working within a, a private structure, whether it's a nonprofit or just a DPC practice, right? Like, you know, your patients and you, you talk to them and you say, what can we do to serve you? And how, how can we make this better? And how, how can my business be adjusted? Um, and, and can essentially provide options that do preserve the patient's autonomy. And I think that that's much easier done, the much more success, you know, it's going to be a, a lighter lift when it's done in these individual smaller orgs. Interesting. 
let's let's touch on uh, patient autonomy a bit because I think mm-hmm. it's a key topic, especially in this post-pandemic world. Uh, yep. You and I have both seen firsthand how patient trust or the lack thereof yeah. leads to different decision making when it comes to healthcare itself. Mm-hmm. Do you think the time is ripe for patient autonomy to empower patients to say, hey, you need to be more in charge of your healthcare and this is what you need to do to be in charge? I I really do. Um I have I have always believed that that is the way, but mm-hmm. I haven't always seen an environment that's conducive to people actually taking that responsibility, right? Because it's not just a right or a privilege. It's also with that right comes great responsibility. Um, And I do think that, you know, we hear a lot about mistrust and uh, loss of trust in public health. And I think that a lot of that, in in my personal opinion, I think a lot of that results and has resulted from from organizations and people trying to control patient decisions right instead of instead of saying i really need you to take this antibiotic because you're septic and if you don't agree to this antibiotic i believe that you will die and here is the evidence to back that up right um I think that the conversations happen differently when mm. you actually believe that the patient has that choice, right? Like if I say, well, you have to take this antibiotic or I'm going to take your decision-making away, like you're going to respond differently to that than me coming to you and saying, you know, I'm really, really concerned and here are all the reasons that I'm really concerned. Mm. And I've had to do that since the pandemic with patients who wanted to refuse things like rabies vaccines, um, right? Which is scary. And I'm like, I promise you, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but also like, this is the horror of the concern that I have. Um, And, and I've never, you know, I I haven't, thankfully I haven't been in that situation where I've had to, um, you know, lose that argument. But, but I just think the way that you, that we approach the conversation and that we approach, um, the patient from a, almost a collaboration is bound to get better results like it is in all areas of life. Um, and I think we've lost, I I think that we've, we've lost sight of that a a little. Yeah. We've grown so complex. We forgot what, how important the simple things are. Yeah. Yeah. Like just, just please. And thank you and respect. And, uh, and I know that you can tell me to pound sand, but here's why you shouldn't. And I, (laughs) I don't know. I, I think that that's, um, just the fundamental way that medicine and life should work. And I don't, I just don't think that public health should be any different. I fully agree. And Ms. Ryder, with the time that we have, um, Mm -hmm. I included your website um, below so that the audience Mm -hmm. can, uh, if they so choose, uh, visit and learn Mm -hmm. more about you, potentially see collaborations. But Mm -hmm. for those who may be listening and not access to the URL, can you let them know how they can get a hold of you? Yeah. um, So I have a couple couple of things um, to share. You can always connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Tiffany Ryder, R-Y-D-E-R. 
My website is tiffanyrider.com. Um, and I have a patient guide that I've written uh, with the intention of doing actually all of the things that we just talked about, like with the intention of informing patients, you know, just a little bit more about the way that the healthcare system works and um, how they can ask questions respectfully to their physicians or clinicians uh, to hopefully get better answers and take some of that uh, power and autonomy back. Um, and the website for that is uh, com. So theinformedpatientsguidetohealthcare.com. And I'm not selling anything there. It's just, um, it's a, a piece of information that I hope uh, can be shared with patients to just increase their health literacy and education. Awesome. And thank you so much for your time. Cool. Thank you.